Would it be easier if you put it on the desk here and I could sit there, or is there yeah. too much light behind me? Are you no, no, no. Okay. I'm not. I'm not it's, there's no video. No video. Yeah, okay. it's no video. Okay. And then you can just pull up one yeah. of the chairs. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay. Hopefully this should work. It's just a uh, sound recording, audio recording. I'm glad there's no video because my desk is in a perpetual mess. Do you want to maybe close it? Yeah, you can close that if you want. No interruptions. No interruptions. Uh, so, John, John Hart, right? Yes. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Sure. And uh, meeting with me. My pleasure. And do you want to just tell us about your um, your position here? Okay. Well, um, I'm Director of Research and Collections at the New York State Museum. Yeah. And in that position, I'm responsible for the museum's uh, natural and cultural history collections and all of the curators and collection staff who take care of those collections and do research on those collections. So I've been, this is my 20th year in that position. Uh, before that, I managed the museum's Applied Archaeology program for six years. Is that still is that still go ongoing? Yes, that's an ongoing program. Cool. And um, that's what I've been doing for the last twenty five years. And what's that Applied Archaeology program like? What is that? It's called the Cultural Resource Survey Program. It's a uh, federal and state laws and regulations require that cultural resources, which are archaeological sites and historic buildings and bridges, any kind of historical architectural feature, are um, taken into account when there is planning for capital projects, either through federal or state uh, funding or if there's a federal or state license involved. So um, there's a series of steps that the archaeologists and architectural historians go through in, while these projects are in their early stages mm -hmm. of um, planning so that the uh, agencies that are doing the work can take into account those, any resources that are within the project area. Uh, typically, what they like to do is to avoid them so that if there's an archaeological site in a project area and the project area project can be redesigned to, to avoid the archaeological site, mm. that's typically what they do. But if they can't, then the archaeological site, if it's eligible for the National Register of Historic Places, has to be excavated to re recover the data that the, the site contains before the construction destroys the site. Uh -huh. So this... The, project, the program in the museum has been in place since the 1960s, and it's been ongoing ever since. Uh, we have uh, traditionally uh, had a contract with SUNY Binghamton, okay. uh, and they do part of the program as well because there's too much work for just the museum staff to do it alone. Okay. So, so I first guess read of your work in the... In your paper, I'm not sure what, maybe early 2000s, about the paleoethnobotany of the, the Northeast. Okay. And I'm sure you've written other papers. Is that is that true? I've, I've published a lot of papers, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and in that, I heard you talking extensively about the early agricultural complex of this area, mm -hmm. the surrounding areas. Do you uh, want to talk a little bit more, expand a little bit more on that? Sure. Well, there was a lot of work done back in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s in the mid-continent, uh, basically the Mississippi drainage valley. Um, and what archaeologists and paleoethnobotanists were able to demonstrate is that there is a complex of indigenous plants that were cultivated 
by Native Americans, mm. starting in earnest maybe 4,000 years ago. Okay. Uh, these included a indigenous squash that was, culti- that was domesticated in the Ozarks, uh, starting maybe six or 7,000 years ago. There were other plants like quinopodium, mm-hmm. which uh, you might know as quinoa. <clears throat> uh, there were some grasses that were cultivated, like mm. little barley, mm. maygrass, uh, a plant called sumpweed. So there's this whole complex of uh, grain and seed-bearing plants that were cultivated by people in the mid-continent uh, before maize and beans were adopted. Mm. Uh, typically, when you think of Native American agriculture, you think of maize, bean, and squash, right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, before then, those were all, those maize and beans were domesticated in Central America. Maize in the Balsas River Valley of Mexico, and beans a little bit farther south from there, and then also in the Andes of South America. And um, gradually, over millennia, Mm. uh, those crops spread Mm. into uh, first the southwest of North America and then gradually into the northeast. Mm. So the earliest evidence we have for uh, squash in the northeast is around, I want to say, 2,300 years ago. Okay, and that's edible squash. Before then, there were gourds, mm. inedible gourds, uh, that were in the Northeast by about 5,600 years ago. And those were the progenitors of the edible sure, squashes. Sure. You, could eat the, you could process the seeds and eat those, but you couldn't eat the flesh of flesh. the gourds. Um, and then maize, uh, Indian corn, came in about 2,300 years ago. What did I say for squash? You said for which one? For the for edible? Squash. Yeah, for the edible. Uh, I thought you said. I think that's more like three. I don't have the dates. Yeah, yeah. Three, three, 300, uh, 2,300 years 2300, ago. 2,300, yes. And, and uh, maize was 1,300 years ago. Um, and then beans, as far as we can tell so far, did not come in until uh, about 700 to 1,000 years ago. Okay. So this. This traditional um, complex of maize, bean, and squash uh, did not come fully together mm. until just about a thousand years ago. Mm. But each of those crops has a longer history elsewhere mm. and in the Northeast. Mm. So, um, other crops that continued after maize and squash were um, adopted were sunflower. Mm which was domesticated in the east and then went west, unlike some of the other crops. For the, tu- for the tubers or for the seeds? For the seeds. The seeds. Uh, su- sunflower. And then there's also uh, what's called Jerusalem artichoke, mm. which is a member of the sunflower family, uh-huh. Helianthus, uh, the genus. And uh, it was also domesticated in the east. Okay. And when you say domesticated, you mean uh, what is that? What what can you? What do you look? What do you think about when you hear that? When you describe that? Um, basically, uh, when a plant is domesticated, it has been cultivated and selected over a long period of time, and it develops certain traits mm-hmm. that um, increase its usefulness to people. So it could be an increase in the size of the seeds. It could be uh, that the seeds don't fall off the plant before they're harvested. Like mm. in a not in a non-domesticated plant, they would. Mm. Um, for example, with uh, with squash, they originated. The original plant was a gourd mm. with inedible flesh, very very bitter flesh, mm. and they were small, about the size. Big one would be about the size of your fist. Okay. Um, and what people selected for was an edible flesh, mm. and edible seeds, and a larger fruit. For containers. 
Awesome. To eat. For, mostly for eating. To eat, right. Uh, the other thing that doesn't happen uh, is with the gourds... They hollow? Well, this, this one is hollowed out, but the rind lignifies. Lignifies. Right. It gets very hard. That's a, so tell me about that process. What is that... What's the significance of the lignified? Well, with these, with the way that these uh, fruits disperse is that they, the plant grows in floodplains. Okay. And uh, the way they disperse is when they dry out and there's a spring flood. Hmm. They float down. Floats down stream. Okay. So the hard shell keeps it from Singing? rotting, basically. Rot and then once it gets on the ground, uh, and eventually through weathering and whatnot, it breaks apart and mm. the seeds fall out and grow new plants. But with squashes, um, same you know, same family, right? Same same, same species, genus, same species. Basically, this is uh, you get the squashes are subspecies of the gourds. Okay. Okay. Um, so basically, with the summer squashes, you can eat the rind. Yeah. You know, yeah. Zucchinis, yellow squashes, patty pans, things like that. You eat the rind. Cucumbers? Cucumbers are old Completely world different. from Africa. Okay. Different, totally different. Um, but then with winter squashes, uh, like uh, uh, acorn squash or uh, butternut or any, uh, Hubbard, or um, there's a whole bunch of them, okay. different, different species. Uh the, the rind does not get so hard like this that you would have to basically break it with a rock or something. You just you cut it open. Okay. Um, but also what happens is by not lignifying, the, the, the fruit can continue to grow. You know, compare this to like an acorn squash yeah. in your mind. You know, it's a big difference. Huh. Or a butternut, even bigger. Yeah. Or a zucchini, you know, zucchinis can get huge. But people still but, obviously use this, right? This, I mean, for small containers, maybe. Uh, well, we did experiments back in the early two thousands, and we demonstrated that they float as well as styrofoam net floats. Huh. So one of the ideas that people were talking about, why would people have used these things, is as fish net floats. Fish net floats, okay. right? Interesting. So, um, and then they would bob if you would get you see it underwater, like bobbing if you had caught fish or. Well, what they do is, um, to, like with gill nets, it basically forms a fence in the water. It, you have some kind of a weight on the bottom of the net, and then you have something floated at the top, mm -hmm. and so it creates a fence, and the fish swim in. They get caught, and they can't escape. Mm -hmm. So you you make a set with the net. And the gourds would be floating the net on the top of the water. Okay. And then you let it in for a half a day or so overnight. You come back the next day, you pull it in, and you get the fish. What kind of cordage do you think were they using for the nets? Um, probably um, milkweed. Milkweed. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, you, it's interesting that you have, like, different... Like milkweed, maybe was native here for a lot longer, right? Than these gourds. Yeah. So they would grow wild without. So could these gourds grow wild? Like you were talking about them in, in maybe in a jungle, more of a subtropical area, right? Not so much. No, more uh, say in the southeast of the United States. Okay. So, you know, deciduous forest. Uh, yeah. In the floodplain. Yeah. But yeah, so that's that's really interesting because could you see like today? Could you see these growing wild and? Unless they were they do grow wild. They do here. Yes, not here, um, in the the Ozarks in Arkansas, Missouri, okay. that area down there. Awesome, yeah. awesome. Yeah. What's what's if what happens though? Since they're the same species as the as the um, squash, mm -hmm. the edible squash, mm -hmm. if they're cross pollinated, mm. the bitterness that you get with the gourd flesh is dominant. So if a gourd plant happens to cross-pollinate with a squash plant mm. and 
the farmer or whoever plants the seeds of the squash the next year, yeah. chances are the squash will be bitter. That's the main uh, phenotypic trait you would see. Would right. you see like bigger a bigger cavity or like flesh the that does it the flesh lignify you think or no the flesh uh, doesn't. Uh, if you had a a um, a ripe one of these from a plant that had grown this year that before it had dried out like this, mm-hmm. you sliced it open, the flesh is just bright green. Oh, okay. It it doesn't look like something you want to eat. Uh-huh. Uh, it's and it's extremely bitter. If you were able to um, ingest enough, it would make you very sick. Okay. It's toxic. So maybe um, medicinal. Maybe no, no. There's no there's no records of that. No, uh, it's it's just not good for you. Okay. So um, so you want to avoid having the gourds growing adjacent to fields where you have squash growing. So, um... For ease of collection? No, so that they don't cross-pollinate. Oh, but you need some distance. You yeah. Say. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course. They're pollinated by bees. Or by bees. Yeah. And you see, like, in records, you see uh, the natives here. I mean, at least when corn come, they, you would see big bushel, like, big harvests of bushels of corn coming eventually off. eventually yeah. right yeah they were very good at what they right. did right right oh yeah native americans uh were very sophisticated and still are very sophisticated farmers oh yeah uh studies have been done by uh jane mount pleasant uh, at uh, cornell cornell who's tuscarora mm-hmm. and uh she's been able to demonstrate that native americans say around between 15 and 1600 a.d or so mm. Uh, were their fields were more productive than contemporaneous European farmers growing wheat and yes. other old world crops right. who had plows and draft animals and mm. fertilizer and things like that. So uh, yeah, Native Americans, Haudenosaunee, uh, Wendat, Algonquian groups like the Asopus Indians and the Asopus Valley, they were very very sophisticated mm. farmers. Mm. Grew they said their total diet that relied on uh, agriculture was well over fifty percent. Well over. Yeah. Now, now in the archaeological record, did you see that? Because I've I've seen studies showing that once that happened, that you see this is kind of controversial, but skeletal uh, effects of extensive farming on the skeleton and you know muscular skeleton system, as opposed to when you compare them, uh, peoples to comparing hunting and gathering to the dominant dominantly or in a dominant way purely um farming would you say like that's something that you see or read on well the big uh the big thing is that with maize uh because of the sugar in it and its stickiness you get a lot more caries dental caries dental caries Mm -hmm. than with people who are not growing and eating a lot of maize okay so that's one of the ways that uh People have been able to track how much maize people were growing, relatively speaking, mm. was by the frequency of carries. Mm. Uh, some other things that might happen, and I'm not an expert in this area uh, at all, is um, because of the, um, if, for example, if you're re- really reliant on um, agriculture and you have a bad year and there's so you have shortages of food. Uh, it causes uh, teeth to stop growing in young people, so you get these striations on the teeth. I starvation, what like different, different times of starvation, you say? Yeah, or just shortages of food okay. uh, for, for a season or so. Okay. Um, but again, that's really not my area of expertise, so okay. I, I don't really know that much about the, the skeletal issues. Okay. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about uh, common myths about northeastern indigenous prior to contact. And so, like, if you want to also maybe address, like, the different periods, you know, going back to the glacial maximum mm-hmm. and, and up you to have, contact. Do you have anything in mind? Are common myths? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, oh, you notice here, like, the savage and the wilderness and some of these terms that people throw out. 
Okay, I think maybe uh, one of the biggest myths or misunderstandings is that when Europeans came over to North America, the Northeast, they were uh, encountering pristine forests. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that uh, people have figured out recently is that, for example, in the Finger Lakes region, mm -hmm. where you had uh, Haudenosaunee and predecessors growing agricultural crops for millennia, the, the entire biota, the, all the plants and animals had been totally changed. So there was a major impact on the landscape hmm. by, by these people because of they lived there and they were do, practicing ag, very extensive agriculture. So um, the kinds of trees that you encountered, the animals that you encountered, uh, were it was not a quote-unquote pristine setting. Mm. Um, I think another myth uh, is that um, a lot of people do not um, consider the Native people to have been sophisticated farmers. One of, the, one of the words that is used a lot in the literature is horticulture. Yeah. So they were horticulturalists. Slash and burn. Well, horticulture, what horticulture means in the um, general lexicon is mm -hmm. what? Gardening. Gardening. Right? Small, small, small scale. scale. Yeah, but these people were, these people were cultivating hundreds of acres. I mean, these were really sophisticated agriculturalists. Hmm. Um they weren't horticulturalists, they were agriculturalists. Mm -hmm. Just because they didn't have plow animals, didn't have livestock, mm -hmm. doesn't mean they weren't very sophisticated agriculturalists. So. And, you know, you, you, sometimes this research comes up, I've heard it, read it uh, in a nature journal about um, the little ice age getting yeah. attributed, to, attributed to the extinction or near extinction of an indigenous on this continent. Do you, do you see that in your evidence that that's pretty valid or... That's well, so it's, debated, a, new, it's or, yeah. a new hypothesis. Yes, new. Um, they were focused primarily on Central and South America, okay, uh, rather than the Northeast. Okay, but um, it's there's definitely a correlation. You had this massive um, death rate in in those areas because of European diseases and and uh, uh, violence. And uh, at the same time, you had a, a distinct drop in the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So there's certainly a correlation there, whether the um, large depopulation of Native people, what, that, was the, that was the cause of the decrease in the CO2. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a hypothesis that people will have to study that more and... Uh, uh, find other proxies for understanding how the climate might have changed because of that, and whether it was a direct result of the uh, of the large the large death rate of native people because of the Europeans coming over. So, so in the Northeast, I mean, was there a, a cutoff where people really stopped agriculture and were more mainly hunting and gathering for plant and animal foods? Was you know, as you got further north or east, oh, you see oh, that you change? Mean, uh, geographically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and interactions between those two societies, how would you say those different ways of living? Yeah, people were um, growing maize um, well up into uh, the uh, St. Lawrence Valley. Okay. Babanaki? No, these were Iroquois people up okay. into... Um, where Montreal is, mm. and they're, they're, Mohawk. Uh, these were um, a group of uh, Iroquois that are called the St. Lawrence Iroquois. Okay. Um, and then the, uh, the Wendat, or the Huron, were by uh, 1650, were living, between 1600 and 1650, were living uh, just south of Georgian Bay. Way up north in in southern Ontario, you know, Georgian Bay is that big bay off of Lake Huron. Okay. 
so it's quite a bit north of here. They were growing lots of maize. Uh, there's evidence um, from farther west that people were uh, at least using maize, and I think probably growing um, near the uh, subboreal forest. And there's uh, historical evidence that people were growing maize, uh, you know, where Sault Ste. Marie is, uh, where the uh, the lower peninsula of Michigan comes up, and then you've got that uh, body of water that's in between Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. Mm. As far north as that, people were growing maize. People were growing maize in Maine and Nova Scotia. So um, you could grow maize pretty far north. Some of the uh, varieties that people were growing had, had um, were would mature in 60 days. 60 days? 60 days. Wow. Yeah. Short so, summers, during the short summers. During short summers, right. Does that say something about maize? It's it maize's variety and vitality and its ability to obviously extend through, you know, the Americas, huh? Right, right. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very widely adapted crop mm. um, in a wide range of environmental settings. Mm hundreds and hundreds of uh, varieties, mm. all adapted to, to specific uh, climates and uh, uh, soil properties and things sure. like that. So, but there's, uh, there's a lot of evidence that people on those northern fringes of agricultural production were exchanging maize for um, other resources mm. with people who were subsisting by hunting and gathering. Mm. So there's a lot of interaction going on there, and maybe I've you know, and then you you know the California natives and uh, Pacific Northwest, you had other resources like acorns right, and right. salmon. Yeah, some of those, maybe they didn't have to depend so much on corn for calories, or would you say? Or yeah, I'm not uh, I'm not really familiar with that area, but I uh, there there were a lot of um, or there were. Uh, groups that uh, lived in large villages and things that did not subsist on agriculture. So, yeah. That's 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 valid to yeah. say that. Yeah. Yep. It has precedent. That's really interesting that you were talking about um, the trade routes. Um, I'm just in the middle of reading, uh, well, I'm reading uh, 1491 by Charles Mann. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it's very... Do you know anything about... you want to talk a little bit any more about the trade routes? Or do you know between the Americas? Or I mean, that's like such a big uh, uh, piece of landmass, I mean, but oh, yeah. that narrows. But very interesting to think about the trade routes and how maybe today we see a lot of their modern transportation following those traditional trading uh, routes, right? Maybe You're we talking about trading routes just in... In general, I mean, how common... In the common, northeast or... Uh, in the northeast, yeah, I mean, let's just focus there. Okay. Yeah, how... Tell well, me about that. Well, people interacted over large uh, distances. Mm. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, evidence for the movement of uh, different kinds of raw materials across vast distances. Um starting from the earliest uh, uh, Native Americans in North America. And um, so there were these, there were long distance tra trade routes, there were short distance trade routes. People mm. were interacting quite a bit mm. uh, just because they didn't have um, wheeled vehicles or, you know, horses or whatever. It yeah. doesn't mean they didn't get around. Yeah. You know, uh, there's water transportation um, and there's also... Uh, large series of uh, trail networks mm. that crisscrossed, well, New York, for example, I-90 basically follows a historical pathway. You know, when you drove over here from Syracuse, <laughs> if you took 90, I did. yeah, you were, you were basically following mm. a, uh, a pathway that had been established for millennia mm. uh, through there. 
it's really interesting. Maybe one day I can, uh, yeah, do more walking and seeing some. You know, obviously cha- landscapes change, but quite a bit. Yeah, but yeah. like to still explore that. Um, talk about like any recent uh, discoveries. Um, I don't know, maybe last year or two years ago, that uh, discovery in California dating back. Some it was like some markings on. Um, I don't know if it was Mastodon or some bones that were pushing occupation or people living on this continent way back before, you know, the Clovis culture. Well, there's definitely, uh, and again, this is not my area of of expertise, but there, there were definitely people here before Clovis, um, probably by at most 18,000 years ago. Uh, I think what you're talking about is, um, very controversial. Yes. Um, there's a lot of uh, people who think that the what the authors of that article were interpreting as uh, evidence that people were uh, butchering or uh, making use of mm. the, um, I forget if it was a mastodon. Or yeah, I can't remember which megafauna that was. Uh, but. Was, was probably caused by heavy equipment. Heavy equipment. <laughs> driving across it as part of road construction. Yeah. Um, so that's very far from settled. But, sure. Uh, I mean, if you go back 20 years ago, everybody thought that Clovis was the first mm. uh, evidence for humans in North America. Mm. But now it's well settled that there were people here thousands of years before then. Mm. It's just a matter of how, how long before then. Mm. Um, but I think given everything, it's probably not going to turn out to be as Not as long as, as that. As but... Do you think there's, because um, I know in mammalogy or the study of mammals, there's a lot of, you know, with the standard narrative of human migration and evolution, you see that where humans went, other megafauna went extinct. Right. And you see right. that, do you think that, do you think that new discoveries and things to come could possibly challenge that standard narrative, just like we're talking about 20 years ago, we thought Clovis was... You know, and then we had the Bering Strait theory into this continent. These new discoveries, do you think they challenge, possibly can challenge history books in terms of how we think about human uh, relations um, and evolution and, and relations with other animals on the landscape? And Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, archaeology, like other sciences, is not static. Mm-hmm. So it's constantly... Uh, creating new knowledge and ch- challenging old ideas. Mm. So it's a cumulative process. Mm. So what we're thinking now um, <laughs> is uh, what happened in the past mm. is building on what people in the, say, the 60s and 70s and 80s were finding out. And so it's a very cumulative kind of process. Uh, you were using, for example, the megafauna extinction. Yes. So, there, there's still a lot of debate about that in the literature mm. as to um, were humans the only factor that resulted in the in the end Pleistocene extinction mm-hmm. of so many uh, megafauna. Hundred plus megafauna. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so people are looking at different parts of the world and looking at timing and other evidence, um, and uh, it's still very much in flux. Mm. My own idea is probably it was a contributing factor, but I don't know if it was the only one. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I think so, too. Especially with all the research coming out with um, possible common impacts in the North American glacial. Right, uh, right. And the recent finding in Greenland with the glacial, Im- uh, the common impact there. Right, right. Could set off triggering different uh, climatic events because of that. Yeah, so there's uh, there's a lot going on, yeah. and uh, at some point uh, there'll be a consensus, exactly. and people will think that that's it for a period of time, and then somebody will find some new evidence for something else, yeah. and there'll be a lot of research on that, and that consensus will change. Mm. So, but um, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, the past is a very people want. Simple explanations about things. Mm. It's easier to comprehend, accept. But the past was a very dynamic, 
complex mm. place. You know, so, so um, we 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 want a simple explanation, but I don't think there are really simple explanations for for most things that were going on. That's that's what makes it interesting to me mm. is that there there. Are, the best science is when you bring multiple lines of evidence to bear on a particular problem. Mm. So it might be a small problem like, well, when was, I mean, a, a single problem like when was maize adopted mm. in the Finger Lakes region? Mm. Well, you might have one line of evidence that says, well, a thousand years ago. But then if you look at other evidence, it'll say 2,000 years ago. Mm. And you have to you have to bring all those lines of evidence together to, mm. to build an understanding of that particular issue. Mm. So if you're dealing with something really big like end Pleistocene extinction of megafauna, mm. I mean, you have to come at that from a lot of different directions mm. to build an understanding. If the only thing you're looking at is the correlation between the arrival of people and the extinction of mm. the megafauna, then that's all that is. It's just a simple correlation. It's not an explanation. Mm. Uh, so you really have to bring in lots of different lines of evidence. For example, looking at the uh, the idea that there was a uh, some kind of a extraterrestrial impact mm. that maybe caused a problem or mm. changed a, a rapid change in climate that contributed to this. You have to look at the arrival of people. Mm. and changes in vegetation and changes in mm. climate and things like that mm. and put all that together to build an understanding so really to my mind we're just um, nobody is at the point yet where they can do that where they can bring up in a lot of different lines of evidence nobody I don't think it I don't think we're there yet as a as like a collectively too yes yeah yeah I'm, why do you think what's what's the obstacle like what's the where's what, you know what's missing or um, evidence I, is missing, or there are a lot of ideas out there. Yeah, um, but they're so far they're just ideas. Yeah, you know, there's not overwhelming evidence mm. for any particular um, event causing the mass extinction. Mm. Uh, so, uh, at some point, each various lines of evidence are going to become clearer. And somebody or some buddies are going to be able to take all those different strands of evidence, put them together for the Northeast, mm. and come up with a good solid hypothesis on why megafauna went extinct here. And that hypothesis may be may not explain what why megafauna went extinct, say in South America. Huh. Could be something totally different. Yeah, or it could be related. But the, the exact parameters will be different. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's really fascinating. Um, I, I want to I wanna, I wanna ask you something, but I, I don't want to also get off track too much. But uh, I was going to ask, you know, when, you know, because you also see different uh, explorers coming here, like Verrazano and Champlain. Right. Were the people here, the Haudenosaunee and the Algonquin-speaking peoples, and maybe the past, um, the some of the confederacies in the in the east, mm -hmm. were would you say they're in the Stone Age, or did they have metals they were using, um, like bronze? Is there is there like a upon contact, let's say like fifth early fifteen hundreds? What was a what error? Like if we can use European terminology. Yeah, I don't like using those kind yeah. of labels. Yeah. Um, What's because what, I think yeah. it. it it calls up ideas in people's heads that are perhaps wrong. But the technology that people were using uh, in North America when uh, Europeans entered, uh, they were using um, raw materials that were available. There was no, uh, nobody was smelting iron, for example or uh, bronze or copper. Uh, people were using copper uh, for uh, various purposes, but it was just cold hammered stuff. It was not, you know, smelted yes. like European copper was. And that's, that's one of the uh, ways that you can trace the entrance of European 
uh, materials into different areas is by looking at the chemical of the copper at any given location. Huh. So, for example, you might find uh, copper beads on a particular site that dates to the uh, early 16th century, you know, 1510 or 1520 or something like that. You can, you can do analyses that look at the trace elements in the copper and tell whether it was copper from North America or smelted copper, copper from Europe. Mm. So um, that's one of the ways that archaeologists trace how uh, European materials were adopted by looking at the at trace elements. Now, why don't you like to use uh, European terms uh, for this continent of, for studying... What is it? What's... I, I'm, I'm open to well, it. Well, when you say, study. for example, the Stone Age, yeah. what does that bring to mind to you? What does that bring to mind? Yeah. Um, what do you think about the people who were doing that? I mean, I could say primitive, but... Yeah. But doesn't mean, for me, when I say primitive, I... I I mean, I often romanticize it, but I mean, often people don't, and f for the Stone Age. Yeah. Um, I, 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 for me, I, I do it out of respect, but I could see how people can take it out of context right. and use it. You know, you know, the like the concept of uh, Flintstoneization. You know, you know that term, Flintstoneization. Flintstoneization. <laughs> no. I yeah, don't. like you know, like with like knuckle dragging cave oh. dwellers and. Yeah. I mean, often what you see in, like, Neanderthal is getting depicted as. Um, yeah. But no, that's... Well, yeah. I think one of the things yeah. that I've done, uh, argued throughout my career, is try to not use those kinds of labels. Mm. Because once you label something, mm. uh, it, it makes it... Um, I can't think of the word I'm, I want to use, but say real. To, so if I say oh, these people were in the Stone Age to, to somebody else. When I say the Stone Age, that automatically <laughs> brings something to mind mm. if they're familiar at all with, with the term. Yeah. But it might be totally inappropriate for the people that you're actually talking about. It, mm. the, what, what comes to mind. Mm. So in Europe, you have the Stone Age, then you have the Bronze Age, then the Iron Age, and body blah, blah, and... and the way that that was originally presented was a um, linear, kind of a linear thing where yeah. people were getting smarter and better <laughs> and more sophisticated yeah. and things like that. So the Stone Age, all well, those those people were primitive, but sure. then eventually they got to the Iron Age and they were more sophisticated. They could kill better, you know, or whatever it was. Um, but that doesn't really say anything about how people were living. Mm. And uh, I'm always more interested in understanding. How, how people were living in the mm. past rather than trying to classify the way they were living. Mm. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. So so what got you into this into this field of study and did you grow up playing in the forests and experimenting with um, different materials or no uh, playing cowboys and Indians or well uh, when I was very young, I used to, um, I collected rocks, I collected insects, I collected uh, various natural history kind of things. Um, when I was, when I entered, when I was an undergraduate, I wanted to get into uh, cultural anthropology. Mm. And specifically, I was interested in um, working with uh indigenous people and understanding their agricultural practices. But then, uh, summer between my sophomore and junior year, I took an archaeological field school. And I figured out that I, I could get paid for digging in the ground and finding neat stuff. And this is totally serious. And that's what made me become an archaeologist. Digging in the ground. <laughs> because that's what I did when I was a kid. Yeah. I would dig holes looking for rocks and stuff. And, <laughs> and then I, I took the field school and I thought, wow. Where did you go to school? Where, where did you go to school? Where did I go yeah. to school? I got my um, bachelor's degree at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. Okay. 
Um, and I got my PhD at Northwestern University, which is in Evanston, Illinois, just out of, outside of Chicago. Okay. 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 That's great. I love I love those uh, those arrowheads on your wall. Oh yeah, those are replications. Oh, they're just none, they're just replications. Yeah. Do you yeah. know who replicated those? Uh, the museum did way Dude. back in the I think the seventies. Uh, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. It was before three D printing, so. Well, that's yeah. pretty good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, when I first started here, an older uh, museum staff member gave me that. Well. You know, it's it's museum property, so he couldn't really give it to me. Yeah, he presented it, it to me as kind of a welcoming, welcome to the museum kind of thing. Awesome. So it's been hanging on my wall ever since. Sure, you can like yeah. stare at that for ages. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> so um, we're getting closer to the end, but what would you say your most re- like well received publication so far is? And then, what do you what do you have um, published? things that you published that you find like a lot of criticism from even still today? Um, well, I think all my work with uh, the histories of the three crops mm. probably get the most attention with maize, bean, and squash. Okay. Um, part, of, part of that um, on uh, pottery sherds broken pieces of pottery, sometimes you'll find a, a, a layer of charred material. Mm. And what that is, it's a, a food residue that charred on the sides of interior side of the pot. And um, one of the ways we looked at understanding the histories of maize and squash was by extracting uh, microscopic particles of silica from that charred cooking residue huh. uh, called phytoliths, which is literally plant stone. And um, th- some of those phytoliths are diagnostic of the plant, of a particular plant. So you can look at an assemblage of these phytoliths and uh, through statistical uh, means tell sure. if it came from maize or okay. not. Okay, so one of the things you can also do with the uh, cooking residue is directly radiocarbon dated. Mm. Okay, so <clears throat> we were able to we got dates that obviously were a lot older than people thought maize was. Mm. I think, when I started this, everybody thought maize came into New York, say, at AD one thousand or nine hundred. Uh, we pushed that back to three hundred BC. Yeah. Okay. So that's wow. thirteen hundred years older. Then, then people had accepted, say, in 2000, people were still thinking maize came into New York a thousand years ago. But now we know it came in wow. 1,300 years so older. So before than Christ? That. Yes. Yeah. Greeks. Uh, uh, if you want to use that term. Yeah. So BC. Yeah. Or before Common Era or whatever yeah. you want to use. Um, so, but what people have shown is that. Um, Dates on the cooking residue can be wrong because if fish or other aquatic organisms were cooked in the pot Mm. with water and their carbon was incorporated into the food crust, to the charred Mm. food crust, um, that could include carbon that was older than when the pot was used Mm. because um, freshwater bodies of water... um, will have uh, ancient carbon in them from the weathering of rocks and soils and things like that. And that's metabolized by the aquatic organisms. And then when the aquatic organ, if the aquatic organisms are cooked in a pot with other resources, that ancient carbon can be incorporated into mm. the cooking residue. You can't distinguish. So you, so, you wind, no, so you wind up getting dates that are too old. Yeah. So when, I, when we first published some of these studies, uh, people were saying, well... You can't trust the dates. Hmm. So I spent over a decade demonstrating that, yes, indeed, we can trust the dates. And now it's accepted. And now it's accepted. That in this area... At first, people would just, like, send me a paper documenting this, uh, what's called the freshwater offsets 
from somewhere else in the world with yeah. no no explanation or anything. They would just yeah. send me the paper as an email attachment. It's like, okay, yeah. So we did lots of, ex my colleagues and I, we did lots of experiments um, and uh, did background analysis of uh, geology and, and stream chemistry and things like that. And we were able to show that in the area, the Finger Lakes and Mohawk Valley and places like that where mm -hmm. we were doing the analyses, there's no evidence or little evidence for any kind of offset. Mm. But it took a long time to establish that. So that was, I never thought I'd spend a big chunk of my professional year studying, uh, my professional career studying ancient food messes, but that's basically mm. what I did for a long time. Nice. Yeah. So that's that's probably, if anything's controversial, that's probably that's what it. it is. But it's pretty much settled. Great at this point. Yeah. Um. Before I ask you the last question, do you is there anything else you wanted to say, um, in terms of recommendations maybe to young people who want to get in this field or, um. Yeah. I or I also could just say like you know what's your like prognosis for the future uh, of people here, uh, as well as you know some of these culturally important plants like squash and kinopodium and little barley and sumpweed and marsh elder, all these you know not so consumed plants today. Yeah. You know what do you think for the future of that? You know, so both for the future of these practices, you know. You know, so what do you see? Um, I know that's a lot of questions, right? Yeah, there. yeah. So maybe we'll start off with saying, what is um, what is the opportunities for young people like myself, fresh out of college, you know, and uh, who want to get involved either in experimental archaeology or research or um, presenting this to the public in some way that could influence opinions and how we think about? Well. Um I mean, there's lots of uh, opportunities to pursue archaeology as a career. Uh, like I was saying earlier, um, when I was talking about the museum's applied archaeology program, yeah. I mean, that that is the major, that those kind of programs, both in terms of um, public programs in like a governmental agency or a university or things like that, or private companies, that that's where most archaeologists are employed. Um, so there's lots of opportunities there. Um, in terms of, um, you know, formal training and things mm. like that, there are master's degree and PhD programs all over the place. So it would be a matter of deciding, you know, what specifically you're interested in and who you want to work with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went to Northwestern for my PhD because there was a specific faculty member I wanted to work with. Mm -hmm. And they just, they happened to accept me when I applied, which was good. Because mm -hmm. then I was able to do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I think you and I had exchanged emails about master's programs. And yeah, like Binghamton, Potsdam. Yeah, there's uh, hundreds of potential Places yeah. you could go. It's a matter of figuring out, you know. William and Mary, I was looking into a little bit. Yeah, there's there's lots of places. So I, there's lots of opportunities. Um, there are also, um, for example, in New York, there's the New York State Archaeological Association, mm. uh, which is um, the people who belong to that. It's a mixture of professional archaeologists and avocational archaeologists. Mm. So if you're interested in um, learning more about archaeology, you can go to their meetings. Mm -hmm. They have chapter meetings. Chapter meetings yeah. and uh, interact with, with people in the, in the chapters. Uh, some of them have annual uh, excavations, cool. things like that. Uh, so, I mean, it's basically a matter of doing some research on the internet and uh, figuring out what the opportunities are in your area mm -hmm. or figuring out where you want to go to school and applying there. And More school. Yeah, yeah. 
But the good thing about graduate school, you know, if you're thinking about that, is that you're concentrating in the area that you want to concentrate in. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like when you're an undergraduate and you have to take, you know, English and <laughs> math and biology and, you know, take all those, um, <clears throat> I forget what they're called, required courses. Yeah. You know, you just focus on archaeology, for example or paleoethnobotany, that would be the major focus, and you get to do your own project under the guidance of uh, a faculty member for a thesis or a dissertation or whatnot. And um, I guess the last question would is uh, maybe if you could define paleoethnobotany. I don't know, we could have done that in the beginning, but also really, like, the, like I said before, the future of these species um, both wild, but also in collections, or even cooking, you know, kinopodium, and, yeah. you know, and everyday eating, and people looking, going to try to recover these plants' well, diets. Well, uh, paleoethnobotany is the study of the interactions between humans and plants in the past. So paleo is old, ethno is people, botany is plants. Okay. Right? Pa- old people, <laughs> plants, basically. Paleo-ethnobotany. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there's a lot of interest in these older crops. Mm. Um, there are people who are doing s- studies on them to s- try and bring them back. Mm. Uh, but do you ever eat quinoa? Yeah. 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 Well, that's... That's kinopodium. I mean, yeah. yeah. So um, it's the Mexican variety huh. of that. Yeah. Not not the variety that was domesticated in the central part of what is now the United States, but still, you're eating an ancient crop there. Mm. Uh, so sunflowers, people still eat sunflower mm. seeds. Um, Jerusalem artichoke, people still eat the tubers. Yeah. Uh, squash. I mean, that's a that's an ancient crop. corn. Corn, right? Not, not well, not the not the stuff you buy at the supermarket. <laughs> I mean, that stuff is just. But uh, you know, you can still get real corn. I mean, what to yeah. my mind, real corn, which is not real sweet, gooey stuff. Yeah. But uh, so by eating, you think we can keep these plants alive? Oh yeah, yeah. If there's a demand for it. Definitely. Yeah. Or you can grow your own. Grow your own. Yeah. You can uh, you can buy heirloom seeds from uh. different crops and uh, grow them. I mean, you can get heirloom tomato seeds. Tomatoes were domesticated in Central America. And, uh, there's dozens and dozens of crops that um, were uh, that originated in the Western Hemisphere, which are now global. Hmm. So, I don't think there's any uh, any chance that uh, those crops will go extinct. I mean, they're just too much of... Even like a marsh elder or like a little barley or something? Those still grow wild. Wild. Yeah. They're just not cultivated anymore. So their genetics are still strong? That they oh, yeah. still survive? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. That says something about like the plants, like I said before. I mean, just since we've started trying to cultivate them and collect them they just they're still here absolutely and they're in their forms yeah you won't be able to find any wild maize teosinte teosinte yes um but the early expressions of what mm. today we would call maize uh you won't be able to find those they're lost but yeah yeah well, they've, they, it's a, what mazes evolved, like that poster you're looking at on my wall. That's just a small variety of mm. what's available, mm. what people have, have, have done, how they have selected for different characteristics. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, you can still find Teosinte, definitely. <laughs> Got to go to, uh, Gotta go to sa- Mexico. Cent- uh, southern Mexico. Yeah. I was there. I was... Um, I was uh, with some Lac and Ha Mayans, and they still practice a lot of their agroforestry systems there. I mean, still, it's kind of dying off a little bit because, you know, things have changed there. But, 
you know, slash and burn. I saw some of those happening, and that was really cool. And at different stages, you'd see different resources coming from out of the landscape, yeah. both plant and animal, fungal too, which is cool. Yeah, I appreciate that, John. I mean, I appreciate. Um, thanks for coming on. Oh sure. And uh, glad get to, to make it up. Yeah, get to see some collections now, right? Oh yeah, definitely. Cool. Okay. I think we're good. Let me stop this.